the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Geopolitical issues are changing container shipping trade flows. Now, that's probably not news to the majority of our regular listeners, but there is an awful lot of uncertainty out there. There's the immediate rates concerns, of course. The near-term forecast is not great, let's be honest. It was only a few weeks ago that the WTO said merchandise trade would grow 1.7% in 2023, and that's already looking a bit optimistic, to be frank. Then, of course, there's the looming overcapacity on the horizon, as owners struggle with their ship addictions and the sizable wad of cash burning a hole in their pockets. But there's a bigger picture here as well. And this is all about the growing uncertainties. Uncertainty around possible recessions in advanced economies, around the longer-term consequences of Russia's war in Ukraine, but significantly around the widening divisions between the US and China. We are seeing a deleveraging of trade between the US and China. That was what Jeremy Nixon, chief executive of Ocean Network Express, said at the beginning of Singapore Maritime Week festivities that are today coming to a close. Many companies in the US are looking to reduce down the amount of imports that they've got coming from China, he said. Now, we've touched on this in previous podcasts, but I thought Jeremy raised an interesting issue. So I asked him to join me on the podcast this week to expand a little bit on this and, of course, look a little bit more widely into the bigger issues facing box lines right now. But we started with that question of the long-term shifts in trade, because that, I think, is very interesting. If you read the most recent UNCTAD studies, and warning, I recommend you read the summary version, and even then, frankly, I'd advise against operating heavy machinery afterwards, but if you read them, it's clear that the evolution of international supply networks towards far-shoring has pretty much stagnated since 2015 now. International supply networks have generally become more decentralised during the last few years, but while some limited evidence of nearshoring and friendshoring exists, it's not a shift that's going to become clear overnight. A meaningful alteration to the current global trade patterns, well, that's going to require locating new reliable suppliers and creating the necessary trade infrastructure supporting such a reorganisation. Geopolitical tensions and the desire for secure supply chains, as the buzzwords have it now, they are changing how the world trades, but this is going to be a slow burn issue over the next decade. And I think the context of all this is that we should probably get ready for more shipping executives like Jeremy to be talking about this and swapping notes with politicians on how new trade agreements and expanding existing ones might better keep the wheels of world trade turning. Yeah, OK, Richard. Well, first of all, it, you know, it was a very, very busy uh, Singapore Maritime Week this week, and uh, I've just... Uh, been in there for two, three days and just got out uh, on my travels again on business wise. But it was one of the key topics. It was a lot about what people were talking about. Uh, you know, it was the elephant in the room in terms of the uh, overall economic and political developments going on, particularly in Asia. And I think, as we all know, China is, is a very, has been a very, very significant player in terms of export production. Um, its imports have, have dwindled during the COVID period. Uh, we very much hope that they will come back again. But uh, in terms of overall for the next one, two, three, four years, you know, the container shipping companies, we have to tune our network to, to the forward demand situation and work within the supply constraints we've got. So we're always looking at that. We're always looking at how we uh, tune the network. But I think, you know, we have to face the fact that, uh, you know, there is a, 
an economic and a political problem between the US and China, something that we're not very happy about, something that's the container shipping lines. We don't like to get involved with politics. We just like business to flow and, and uh, you know, so we can get on and, and run our business. But there is no doubt that the uh, the tariffs, particularly the certain commodities now, are, are biting. And I think, secondly, there is um, some some political feeling now in the U.S., that China is is now seen as no longer neutral, and I think that's 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 a shame and that's disappointing. But and so many of the businesses in the U.S. I sense are starting to de-risk on China. What does that mean? It means uh, yeah, clearly the one on one plus one policy, which we're all very familiar with, but it's just being pushed harder now. And so we're seeing um, we're seeing products that are would always been made in China now being pushed. Uh, by by BCOs on their uh, spreadsheets that they're doing for their tenders, seeing them more and more coming down into into Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, um, you know Thailand, uh, and now Bangladesh even more, and India is really picking up as well. And it, one of the key factors in India is, as we know, it's always had a big labour population. The issue has been more around the ports and their capabilities. Well, as we all know, the investment's been pretty phenomenal in the last ten years on that front. And secondly, on the inland side, with a lot of the legislation around working hours and shift working, that has changed now. And people like Apple, as you are well aware, are now working, you know, 24/7, two production lines, uh, and being able to produce products that they weren't be able to make before. The automotive guys have already been into India quite significantly, and that's only going to accelerate. So, I think it's a question of us seeing more and more moving in that direction, but. As we've all talked about, everybody's well aware there is a limited finance ability for these countries in terms of production and sourcing, and so China will still be a big chunk. But we just have to recognise that over the next three four years, that China will probably, you know, be be less of a share. And I think the other point though is that that's that's the U.S. China story. But of course, many 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 countries in the world are also sourcing from China as well. And uh, where they can't, where they find factory prices now higher and less available in Southeast Asia and in the Indian subcontinent, because the U.S. buyers are in there, they're going to find more value potentially by coming back into China. So what goes around comes around, and it, uh, I think the China-U.S. story is more a TP issue clearly, and we'll see, uh, we'll see, we'll still see China being a very significant player. And what is quite, quite clear in the first three, four months of this year is the intra-Asia is very strong in the market. And so we're seeing uh, imports and exports into China, particularly with Southeast Asia and other areas, quite strong. And and that's the point. I mean, we are talking about a very complex set of long-term geopolitical changes there. But it's very difficult to be able to isolate what that means for shipping, certainly in terms of uh, forecasting TEU ton miles, because just viewing it in terms of U.S. China decoupling is not the whole story, as you say. Intra-Asia is growing. The complexities of supply chain security require a more robust series of uh, supply chains. That affects ton miles in interesting ways. Do you think it's ultimately going to be net positive or negative for shipping in the grand scheme of things? Or is it too complex to be able to think in those terms yet? Personally, I think it's net positive. I think what's going on is uh, that more finished goods will be sourced, as we said, from Southeast Asia, particularly to the US and potentially from Europe. But actually, those countries don't have the ability to source all of those individual components directly in their own domestic markets. 
And so therefore, they do need to source a lot of those components, which are coming out of Taiwan and are coming out of China. And so that is probably helping a lot with the interregional activities. And then as we come further down towards Southeast Asia, of course, in ton miles, that is, is adverse in terms of the Asia-Europe trade. But generally on the Trans-Pacific, it's actually positive because uh, we still need to move product over the West Coast. So you've got further to come down into Southeast Asia. Generally, you know, a five-loop service becomes a six-loop service. And of course, on the old water as well, uh, coming through Southeast Asia through Suez uh, needs quite a few extra ships as well. So I, th I think overall, it's probably going to work out in the, in the mix reasonably okay. And I mean, taking a slightly more immediate view on this, you're, you're balancing the long-term shift in geopolitical trade against the post-pandemic slump and, and whether or not we've hit the bottom in terms of rates. And then, of course, you've got a lot of your competitors ordering ships just at the point where rates are not where they once were, let's be honest. Um, how do you view the sort of the general state of the order book and what that means for rates going forward and, and you know are we heading into a period of overcapacity now so i think the you know as we know the order book was actually very lean for the last uh, two three years and it has had, as you say rightfully it's accelerated in the last 18 months i think a lot of that is around a sustainability story i think the need for the big container shipping lines to maintain not only very competitive slot economics but also thinking about sustainability and particularly the EEDI and the CII. So as you know, container shipping, we're somewhat unique as a, as a business because we are the owner operator and dealing with the end customer. And so in the, in, in the bulk trades, you know, the, 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 the ship owner is, is really concerned about the EEDI and the charter is interested in the CII. Uh, we have to do both. And therefore, I think that uh, what you're seeing is that we're having to keep ahead of the curve because we know we've already seen fit for 55 coming in now. That's a fact in Europe. And uh, we are hoping that something more positive is going to come out of MPPC 80 in July, which will start to really not only have some carrot, but actually have some stick components to, to the forward uh, sustainability issue. So I think that, you know, we, we need, uh, we've always gone bigger uh, and newer to, to improve our sustainability, our, our, our CO2 per tonne mile. But we also now, as you see, with the container shipping sector is ordered in the last 12 months, something like just shy of 100 ships now, which will be able to be dual fuel, green fuel, ready type vessels. I mean, that's, that's a huge investment of around about $15 billion already. And, and I think that will continue because of the need to think about the green fuels as well and being ahead of the curve on that. So I'm not too concerned actually on the new build. I think it's it, it's building for the future. And secondly, as we all know, the actual amount of deployed capacity at the end of the day depends on how many how many sailings you have. And uh, if you have 15 sailings a week and you you blank one or two, you can still uh, to some extent monitor your capacity in line with the trade. I do, however, think that uh, the level of scrapping is surprisingly low at the moment, and I do expect that to significantly accelerate in the next 18 months. Um, what do you think is holding off on that scrap? Because as you say, I mean, the economics would suggest that we should have already seen it. Um, why are we not seeing more scrapping at the moment? Are people waiting for slower steaming, for ships to start casing the water? What's going to be the trigger, do you think? I, I think three factors. I think, uh, you know, the, the, the first 
and I think here we're talking about more the small to medium sized ships at this stage. Um, I think three factors. The, the, the first one is that, as we know, back in 221, 220, 221, 22, when ships are very scarce, the, the owners were able to get some very, very beneficial contracts with the charterers. So they were forcing them to charter for three, four, five years at very, very high rates. And of course, those deals are still playing out at the moment. Those are still valid. And so we'll start to see tonnage coming out of those type of contracts towards the end of 223, 224. And when those owners can't get the high charter rates, then they'll, then they'll have to review uh, whether they scrap or not. I think that's one issue. I think the second one, as we discussed earlier on, there is actually, although the deep sea trades are, are not as strong as they, they were, uh, we're seeing the intra-regional trades are pretty strong, actually. So there's a lot of new developments going on like that. For, for example, uh, you know, we're just uh, moving up uh, our Middle East uh, Africa service, you know, from fortnightly back up to weekly. We can see the demands improving a lot of these regional coastal type services. And I think the third one is, is as we know, the Ukraine-Russia developments, you know, freight finds its way in clever ways to, 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 to these markets and around the problems. And we have seen a lot of chartering of, of these ships also, charter pressure coming through from a lot of uh, Chinese and Russian entities who, who have taken up this, this middle trading role uh, to provide particularly uh, very, a lot of services up into the Russia Far East and up into the up into the Black Sea area, which the traditional carriers have had to back away from because of the sanctions. Now you're entering into reporting season, so I can't ask you too much in terms of details. But I mean, on the rates situation, do you, do you think we've we've hit the bottom in terms of rates, and and what happens from here on? Yeah, difficult difficult to speculate on that. Um, I think what we can say is though that uh, we have seen some improvement in the transpac rates in the last fortnight. I I think that is that is partly a demand story. There's no doubt that in the last three four weeks we have seen bookings pick up. Uh, we are coming into the golden week holidays now in the first week of February. There traditionally is a, a rain shadow after that. So at the moment, we don't see the rain shadows being too strong. We see uh, bookings coming back up. Of course, nothing like 2.21 or 2.20 back into 2.20. Um, but but there is some there is some, some bond issue there. I think the other one is is that you know a lot of the carriers today are running on very, very similar economic models in terms of their slot costs. The ship, the ship size are very similar. The port costs are very, very similar. The inland bottlenecks are very, very similar. And so when we start to move into negative cash out uh, freight rate situations, um, historically that was done at, at, at different levels for different competitors. I think these days uh, with the big ships and how we've deployed them, um, once once you get down to some of the levels we saw earlier on five, six weeks back, you know, you, you're into a cash, cash out situation. So the more you do, the more you lose. And so I think there's some, some probably some some economic baseline in and around that. But I don't want to overly speculate. I think I think the market is the market. We'll see how things play out. Um, clearly, 223 is not going to be anything like uh, to, uh, the, the last couple of years. Um, and 223, 224 will probably be quite challenging. But I, I, I feel confident the industry will get through this and that better times will be ahead. I mean, you mentioned that there are lots of similarities between the various operators of the business now. I mean, what what constitutes a sort of differentiation? Is it is it purely now on, on operational efficiency that you're competing, do you think? I think that's one factor. And I think the other one is, is really around the customer service offering. 
Um, so, you know, we, we'll, a number of us are in alliances where essentially the end-to-end, -end, the port-to-port -port product is, is very similar in terms of transit time. And, and through the consortium, the benefits of the consortium allow us to all deploy the biggest, biggest ships with the lowest slot cost on, on all these port pairs. So 24,000 is obviously Asia Europe. And the 14s, 14s, 15s pretty much now across the board for the Mediterranean, uh, US West Coast, US East Coast. And, and, and transatlantic is also pushing up as well. So that's, I think that, that, that that's a real positive. But I think the carrier we're really focusing on as O&E is on our land side operation quality, and particularly our customer service side, uh, lo looking at how quickly we can respond to any queries or concerns the customer has, trying to provide the customer as much data and information as early as possible, and, and really making uh, the, the, the whole customer service experience a lot smoother and a lot easier to deal with. And I think that's a key area of differentiation going forward for many of the lines. And in terms of um, investment, we've got a lot, a lot of businesses with a lot of money burning a hole in their pockets. I mean, we've talked about overcapacity and, and, and the investment in tonnage. Do you, do you think there are other opportunities? We've obviously seen a lot of port and logistics investments across the industry. Is there more to come, do you think? I think the... You know, as you rightfully say, the balance sheets have, have, have been pretty good. And of course, some of that has gone back to owners in, in forms of dividends. And uh, for my own company, uh, you know, we're very careful with our balance sheet. Uh, we'll, we'll only invest, invest in things which we think are strategic to the business and will give us a long term value add or competitive advantage. Um, so, so we're being, I think, quite careful there. Um, and we'll continue to just invest in, in, in really full container line point to point and, uh, and some things like terminals as well and, and uh, the, those type of items. Other players have, have differenti are differentiating their service in other ways by offering this, this last mile delivery, getting into e-commerce, getting into air freight, etc. And I think that's good for the industry that we have different value propositions coming from different players. And, and I don't think any one of them is the absolutely the right thing to do. I think it's, it, 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 it is all about segmentation and offering different types of value. And it actually it's quite complementary. Um, and we'll see how we'll see how that plays out in the next three, four years. Of course, the challenge is, is to make sure that some of these investments that we're all making are counter cyclical and that we don't just double down on on the uh, on, on the really tough trading types when they come. Uh, so I think that's that's also part of the part of the strategy and part of the cleverness, if you can, of, of getting your investment decisions right. Final question. Um, yeah, it's your job to be um, optimistic and, and robust in your, your, your views, but you sound pretty positive given the state of the market. That's interesting. I wonder, you know, what's the, what are the key things that are keeping you awake at night in terms of strategic thinking over the next five years? What are you most concerned about? Well, I think the, the, the geopolitical situation, I think at the end of the day, shipping, in particular container shipping, are, are the servants of global trade. Um, you know, we're always expected to be there in the right place at the right time to move the product. And, uh, you know, I think during the whole COVID and the whole crew change thing, we showed that we were such an important industry and a key, key player there. I, I do worry that the uh, some of the uh, unintended consequences of some of our politicians to make some decisions are not being fully thought through, um, and that could have some some quite significant impacts on the industry 
it's a, it's geopolitically. But but uh, as I say, we're not politicians, we're business people. We'll just have to get on and work with that. But trying to predict those shocks, and when those shocks come, they're normally quite brutal. And uh, we have to just suddenly sort of stop trading or cutting back in certain locations and redeploying, etc. And and, and that, that is always the challenge, trying to keep one, one step ahead of those type of things. I think the other area is sustainability. Um, I think that the, the, the shipping industry, particularly the container shipping industry, the World Shipping Council, is very, very focused on sustainability. It, it, it wants to provide a much greener product. I think it knows how to. I think it can, it, it's pretty confident it can work all that through. I think it's, it's really back more to the regulators, which is how long do you want us to take to do it? Um, and, and, and because it is all about the fuel, availability of fuel, and it's all about sending the right regulatory signals to give us certainty in our forward investment strategy. So, you know, those hundred ships already is a pretty bold move by the container shipping industry. But to go and build another two, three, four, five hundred over the next two, three, four years means that we need to know the fuel's coming. And secondly, we need to know that there will be some leveling up in the cost between the conventional fuel oils and and these much more expensive green fuels as well. Uh, and that the regulators are, 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 are cognizant of that and going to work on that. So I do do have a little bit of worry around uh, the regulatory side and, and the ability to really comprehend and understand we need to move forward. We need to get on with it, but we need to do it in a very logical and controlled way to allow the investment and encourage the fuel companies to step forward and make sure that enough of this green fuel is really going to be available. Otherwise, we could be getting ourselves into quite a difficult situation where we're being beaten with a big stick, but actually we don't have the, the tools at our disposal, particularly in, on the fuel side and the ability to make sure that everybody's playing by the same rules. Well, that is where we're going to leave Jeremy and the podcast this week. On the topic of decarbonisation, I am currently working my way through what promises to be a deep dive special report ahead of the forthcoming IMO MEPC meeting this summer. No spoilers yet, but I think it's fair to say that you will be hearing more on Jeremy's point about available green options for shipping over the next few weeks. For now, though, thank you to Jeremy for his time this week, and thank you for listening. Have a good week, everyone.